Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. Today I'm joined by Alva Devoy. Alva is the Managing Director of Fidelity's International's Australian office. She's spent over 20 years working in a variety of capital markets and investment roles in Australia and Europe. I'm looking forward to chatting with Alva about what it's like to run an asset management firm the pros and cons of large investment firms versus smaller boutiques, and the future of active management. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Alva to the podcast. Alva, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while, particularly asking you about your background because it's quite interesting. How does somebody with a doctorate in molecular engineering get into the investment business? There is actually quite a neat common thread um, and research is the key. So in doing a PhD in molecular engineering, genetic engineering, um, I spent many years researching at the bench for a final outcome and I worked in applied sciences. So I was actually delivering a vaccine. That was my um, PhD thesis. And if you can research in one milieu, you can research in another so that is the common thread. The um, the next question is like, why move from from an engineering background into finance? And I think it's it's personality driven and in in um, interest driven. So I was doing my PhD during the first Iraq War, and let's say the ninety two uh, time frame around Desert Storm, etc. I would be reading financial press avidly, effects on oil price and defense spending, et cetera, et cetera. And coming into university and wanting to talk about it to a bunch of people who had absolutely no interest in the outside world, um, going from my professor all the way down to my peers. Um, and it was, I think it was at that juncture, um, combined with the necessity to continuously repeat experiments to make sure you got the same result that I decided I was uh, in in the wrong pond. Um, so I suppose it trip switched the fact that I was much more interested in going outwards with my knowledge and learning more um, about, I suppose, the global um, economic 
environment, um, politics, um, the sociology of economics, etc., rather than getting to know more and more about less and less and becoming an expert in a very narrow, small field. It sounds almost like you got a bit bored with working in a controlled environment and wanted to experience a more uncontrolled environment such as financial markets. Yeah, I guess you could say that. And I moved from being an analyst on a sector where um, I did move from known to unknown, but then uh, became a technology analyst just into the dot-com boom, but found after a period of time that I was mirroring my experience um, at the bench in that I was getting to know more and more about less and less. And also I would go out as a stockbroker at the time to asset managers and talk to them about which stocks they should buy. But then I couldn't contextualize the decision for them on the other side, which stocks they should sell, what that would mean for their sector weighting, how that affected, you know, or linked in with their macro view, etc. So I decided, you know, to move at that point across to, to asset management and worked my way through managing funds all the way into probably the least controlled job of all in markets, which is the market strategist. Because as a market strategist, calling the markets, looking at the influence of both economic growth, but also sentiment, etc., um, you are standing on quicksand. You are never on firm ground. And that's probably the most uncontrolled of all of the environments that I've worked in. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that. I was thinking as you were talking about how you... You've come in from a very different background to most people. Yeah. What struck you about the way people did their research? Yeah. Uh, the really interesting thing to me were was that insights could come from anywhere. And, you know, there was that big window on the world, if you like, access to expertise. You could go and ask people questions, be it the company management, the people they were selling to, um, those that were buying the products, etc. And all of it was valid research, but it's all very much up and out there, as opposed to, you know, working at a bench where you're designing your own experiments um, working them through so you get an actual result and then a repeatable result to make sure it's statistically significant. So um, that, I guess, harvesting of information and harvesting of intellectual property started a huge love affair of mine with intellectual property because it comes in in many forms. My first role was actually to go in and uh, work on pharma companies and pick apart um, clinical trials. So that first piece of work, if you like, um, I was learning from a very seasoned analyst who was not up to speed on the pharma sector. So she taught me the accountancy, the valuation methodology, the rigor and that side of it, while I um, taught her about drug science, um, clinical trials, etc., and probabilities, and then all the way through to um, monitoring uh, competing molecules, if you like. So it was a very... Uh, neat reciprocal arrangement for a period of time and then I went on to to do technology research um, and become a tech analyst. Sounds like you were able to help each other. So how long do you think it took before you started to feel comfortable with the the numbers aspects of uh, equity research? I'd say very quickly to get the numbers piece but then you know lots of people can build models. Where is the true value in that for a period of time I thought there was a huge value 
in building models, getting my models right, you know, being, you know, crystal clear on everything being connected. Um, but I actually, you know, and that, and that's good when you're getting up and started. You need to build your confidence. You need to be able to stand over your numbers. You need to be able to give a, a recommendation. And at that point in time, I'm in a small stockbrokers in Ireland, putting a buy, sell or hold on stocks and go, going out and pitching it to clients. So you need to be absolutely across your numbers and your rationale. I guess um, what I didn't realize, and it has resonance in today's world because we're 10 years on from the GFC, is I hadn't been through a cycle. So if you think about it, late 90s, putting a buy on a tech stock, everything was going up, you know? So for a while, you believe your own crap, um, <laughs> quite frankly. And it isn't until, you know, you do hit a cycle and you've got skin in the game, you know, money because you've, you've, bought these stocks you know you're into investments yourself you don't know what it feels like that's the other side of it so um i remember i had a price target on one particular stock in irish tech tech stock at 110 um dollars it was listed in the us and i was in asset management um a number of years and one of my peers my colleagues found that report um many years later <laughs> i think the stock was at 10 so you know it's a humbling experience because you've put your name to something you've gone out into the public domain but even more humbling is when you know you lose money on behalf of clients and that's something you never want to repeat sounds like you you had a couple of uh lessons learned the hard way which i, I guess all investors have to go through mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that your your career progressed through various stages where you you were specializing in healthcare and then technology and then finally becoming an investment strategist which in some ways you can't really call a specialization because it's much broader. much broader um, and that that also introduced a lot of uncertainty did you have to change the way you did your work to cope with that or yeah as an analyst your toolbox is your modeling your your PL cash flow balance sheet and there's a reason why i guess analysts spend so much time on their models it's, it's like a security blanket it's a safety zone and for those who become career analysts that safety zone is really really important they like being expert in their field they love the um the fact that they have to predict quarterly earnings or half yearly earnings in the australian case um, but, you know, there's a sense of security around knowing the company, either knowing the management's very well, but also knowing the cycles of the business as well. And to step up into a zone, um, I had been a macro based investor, so it wasn't completely unfamiliar. I, you know, come into my own through managing money as from a, a macro lens um, to step into the zone where the data is the data and you have to have a healthy level of cynicism to a degree um, around the data feeds that are coming through. And the real art is in the connecting the dots. The real art is pulling apart the, the whys behind a particular data point or a trend line on data as well, but really moving into um, from one dimensional slash two dimensional as, a, as an analyst to um, really three dimensional thinking as a strategist. Um, questioning um, events in markets, questioning the domino effects um, that are still coming through events, you know, probably three, four or five years later, you know, you, we could take the GFC as an example, 
all the way through to connecting the dots from disparate pieces of information to paint a picture. Um, so completely different. One of the things that I've found in doing strategy work, and I'd be interested to hear if you experience something similar, is that you've got to develop a sense of the perversity of markets because markets often don't, they don't behave in the way you think. You know, good news can sometimes be bad news and vice versa, depending on what expectations are already mm-hmm. priced in. So uh, that, that was something that I found challenging at first, was getting to grips with that perversity and also sort of always having in the back of your mind that it, that it can happen yeah. and sort of allowing for that in, in your strategy work. Is, is that something you found? Or? Absolutely. And you're all the time... If, if you have a level of humility to you, you're all the time looking for what it is that you're not seeing um, and what you're not understanding because you take information as it stands today, that's the best lens that you have, you make your connections, you paint a picture, that's usually predicated on you know, a fairly sensible framework, either you know the business cycle or the investment clock or whatever it is that you subscribe to or valuation metrics, etc., um, but what I found um, the best help to me in terms of keeping a weather eye on uh, and being aware of, of um, the areas that I may not be picking up on was conversations with clients. Because one of the most attractive things about working in markets is we're working with very intelligent people. Um, I was servicing clients, including Fidelity at that time. I would come in and talk to Paul Taylor and Kate Howard. Um, I was servicing competition, Schroeder's, Martin Conlon, and all those guys there. And it was the conversations that I had with them that was sometimes trip switch. You know, I didn't think of that. I didn't see it that way. Um, or one particular conversation I can remember having with Martin in particular, where he said, you just look so downhearted. And it was a, a situation where we were calling everything right on the data and markets were, com- you know, behaving completely the opposite to what we had expected um, in terms of asset prices, etc. And you kind of go, but I'm getting it all right, but the market reaction is completely counter. So yeah, of course you go through zones like that. Okay. I'd, I'd be interested to hear about any um, mentors or people that you found influential along uh, throughout your career. Were there any mentors that stand out? Um, well, I, I suppose I have to start with my parents and my father in particular, who I come from a very working class background. My dad was a baker and my mum worked in a bakery. And um, their, I suppose, ticket for their two kids out of where we lived was education. And by hook and by crook, um, ended up getting myself and my sister Laura um, fantastic educations and she has a financial services career in Ireland currently. But that, I think, um, the power of education and the power of learning has never actually left. Um, and the way that I learn and continue to learn is a lot of it is through conversation. It's connectivity with people who are very, very different to me who've different backgrounds, but also really importantly, that cognitive diversity, they think differently and think outside the square. You know, I'm a scientist, I'm an engineer. Um, I think quite logically, uh, but I do think in the round. So that's helpful. Um, I pepper my learning by talking to demographers, you know, anthropologists and people, management consultants, etc., who just have a different lens. 
in terms of uh, mentors, um, there were ones in the industry, but one to mention probably outside of the industry is my cousin Brian, who um, I believe in all careers you have to do an apprenticeship. And in that apprenticeship, you probably are a dog's body. You probably are working 70, 80 hour weeks for a period of time until you perfect your craft. And that is just life. Um, and for those uh, who have ambition and want to be good at something, you just got to get in all heart and get on with it. Uh, but you do have to be mindful of your health on one hand, and you, or otherwise you don't have longevity. And you also have to be very careful of self-actualizing as well. That in being ambitious and in want to doing well in your job, you don't lose sight of all the other facets of your personality that need to be fed as well. And if you take a step back and make sure that they are fed, you end up a very rounded, resilient uh, individual. And I think that's worth its weight in gold in today's world. Um, I guess within industry, um, I've had some wonderful bosses and one in particular stands out Randolph Clinton who I worked for at RBS and then CIMB in investment banking um, purely because of you know a monomaniacal focus on results but definitely a coach style leader um, and could build superb teams and, and taught me how to do that. Sounds like your parents set you a great example which was uh a big part of setting you on the right path. And uh, you mentioned also the importance of learning, which is something I'm going to ask you about a little later because that seems to be a trait common to most good investors, mm -hmm. the desire to always keep learning. So you've had this great career where you've worked in Europe, you've worked in Australia. What do you think are some of the similarities and differences between uh, capital markets and the investment business in, in Europe and in Australia? Um, I guess it's e it's easier to pick the differences um, and they're, they're on a couple of different levels. I think working in Australia, we have to work way harder at pulling the information to us. You have to go hunt um, for information, for um, stories, developments within markets, etc. And it's very easy with the tyranny of distance, I guess, to miss nuanced changes uh, in investment markets, pieces of information, etc. Whereas I found working in Europe, it's a massive push towards you. You're picking up information all the time by osmosis because the newspaper headlines were there um, TV, etc. It's in the heart of, you know, financial markets in real time. And so that was a huge difference to me coming to Australia where I've had to set up my own infrastructure so that I do, I suppose, you know, throw the net wide and, and capture the information that I need. Um, I do think that uh, we underappreciate various structures in Australia um, and we probably do ourselves a disservice here and I say us because I'm an Australian citizen now so coming into Australia I knew about superannuation it was one of the reasons I moved here because I wanted to be part of um, a growth industry and uh, I completely underappreciated the RBA 
in particular. I think in the Royal Bank of Australia, we have amazing stewardship of monetary policy set appropriately for this economy um, by some outstandingly intelligent um, and, and very, um, you know, people who, who see their careers as vocations the stewardship of, of this economy and this the monetary policy. I think we underestimate the power of superannuation and what it has done for society here in the level of sophistication around money. Um, and I also think we underestimate the power of the controls around immigration for this country. And I know it's a very hot potato um, of a political topic, but I'm talking about it more um, in the sense that from a Department of Immigration perspective, the way that we can use the ebb and flow of labor to the advantage of this economy is incredible. Because if you think about the heady days all the way up to 2012, when we got, you know, um, resource mega boom happening, mining capex, we needed so many, you know, workers to come here. And it was come, you know, I mean, literally was just come on board. Then things started to get a little bit wobbly around about August 2012. And all of a sudden, the visa program switched to, well, you can come to work on specific projects. And once those projects are over, you must leave um, to basically um, a hiatus period on four, five, sevens, while we moved labor from the mining capex boom back to the eastern seaboard to residential non-resi construction. So we've had, you know, a peak in unemployment here through that shift, probably my mind wants to say 5.6%, which is phenomenal. Thereabouts, yeah. yeah. So those are, I suppose, the standout differences um, to me. And then similarities are, you know, um, I guess the the things that you, well, I guess to take a step back, when I came to this country, I thought, you know, oh, I'm just going to be a hotshot because I've got, you know, US equity expertise and I've got European equity expertise. And, you know, I'm just I'm going to sail straight into a job and I'm going to be fabulous. <laughs> you know, I, I came up against the most amazing investors here who, you know, put me up against the ropes in my job as a market strategist, but elevated my game um, on on the other side of it. So, you know the the actual investment expertise in this country again is phenomenal and probably don't shine a light on that too terribly often i think there's a lot of people here that have worked overseas at one point or another in their career and so they've brought back uh, an eclectic mix of of skills and backgrounds with them uh, and i think in some ways being an Australian investor, and I think the same is true of other small open economies, you, you, by nature, you have to be much more globally focused. I think US investors can in some ways become a little lazy because they're 60% of the world market cap. They don't really have to worry about currency yep. because they're the reserve currency. Uh, whereas for us, you get a currency call wrong, you can Torpedo your results, you can yeah. destroy several years of, um, of of gains on the rest of your portfolio. So I think being a small player in a in a global economy kind of forces Australian investors to to have to think globally in bigger picture. So as you've mentioned, uh, your, your careers progressed through these various stages, and uh, part of your career has been responsibility for different teams. Now you're responsible for Fidelity's Australian team. So as somebody who's had 
various leadership roles in financial services and investment businesses, what advice would you give to somebody who's starting out in their first leadership role? Two pieces of advice. Make sure you know your industry inside out and back to front. And the really interesting thing about that piece of advice is you will be moving into a leadership role because you've demonstrated a level of expertise. You've probably, you know, either been a hotshot salesperson or you've managed a big project, etc. But I find if you've been in an industry a long time, sometimes you don't take the time uh, and make the effort to get off the hamster wheel to stand back and look at what's really, really going on. Because a lot of us get on the hamster wheels, we deliver within our remit, you know, um, you hit pay dirt, you make your bonus, you go on to the next year. And by stepping off the hamster wheel repeatedly through your career, but most especially as you move into a leadership role um, and taking a, a different, a balcony view, if you like, looking front, front to back on the industry that you're now leading in, um, I think is really, really important in part because you have to set the direction. And if you are setting the direction predicated on, you know, past um, experiences and where you've come from, that's just your experience within your realm. So the best way to, to get a different view is get out and talk to people and really excavate your industry from a market's participants point of view across all areas and I've done that even though I've been in this industry over 20 years and I've been in Australia nine years when I took over managing um, Fidelity a couple of years ago I just got out and talked to people you know what are you needing what are you struggling with what are you seeing what are the changes that are going on in your business to paint a fuller richer picture to allow me to set direction for our business Um, so that's probably the main piece of advice. The second piece of advice is in taking over a team, do not transfer your view of success onto the people that you're managing. Um, And what do I mean by that? You know, my view of my success is a particular vision, you know, of what I want to achieve. And I'm I was happy to to move around the world and change countries in order, you know, to move up and, and learn, um, be learning all the time and learn about new economies and new markets that isn't everybody's definition and when you take over managing a team have the humility to sit down with each of your team members and ask them what drives them what their role is to them what they're doing in their day-to-day role to achieve the outcome of the company and listen to how they see it and then listen to how they see their careers unfolding and what their aspirations are and um, without transferring your own assumptions i couldn't help thinking when you were talking about the need to get out and get perspective about uh, what's implied by that statement which is if you're going out there and getting perspective you can't be micromanaging your staff yeah. <laughs> you can't be in two places at once no so that's where hiring you know i would see my job, a huge part of that is hiring the right people with the right skill sets into the right seats with the right attitude. So there's four components in there that all have to be correct. Um, and then when you've got that in place, what you can achieve together is absolutely phenomenal. Um, one of the 
I think the most important things to realize about leadership in today's world is it has shifted enormously. And I, I, I don't know that we've actually focused a lens on this. You don't become a leader anymore just because you're a subject matter expert and probably you know, you're not a subject matter expert because it is very, very difficult to be across all components that fit into uh, making a really successful business. As a leader today, what you are doing is harnessing experts because you can't know it all. What you are doing as a leader is allowing yourself to be reverse mentored by people way younger than you um, with very, very different degrees um, coming in to help you um express and realize your vision for your business so there's a level of humility to that and I talked about the team hiring the right people um, and making sure they're in the right seats a lot of leadership today is to use General Stanley McChrystal's um, lens he wrote the book Team of Teams is I actually heard him speak at a conference there you go it was very good. pretty inspiring yeah. individual definitely so his view is leadership today is actually about gardening, that you pick the right seeds for the right conditions, you water, um, tend, nurture, and then you get out of their way. So he found he was, um, you know, part of the U.S. Uh, coming good in Iraq and Afghanistan as part of the surge, etc. That um, when he had the right teams doing the right thing in the right places, they were still waiting for him to give the okay on particular activities, etc. So he was like the cork in the bottle. Whereas these guys were on the ground, in the thick of it, and well-equipped to make decisions. So he took himself out of the field. He gave them power um, on the ground, in situation, to, to make the right call. And that is, that's a hard thing to do. When um, your success within the business is uh, around people delivering for you to your point around not micromanaging taking the step back trusting empowering and then when things go wrong pulling it apart to get the learnings without blaming and this is where I think military culture has a huge amount to offer us you know it's not necessarily intuitive but if you were to read books on the the navy seals in particular they have um you know a collective ownership um, as groups, if they go into an environment, into a particular task and something happens or screws up from, you know, the top down, the leader owns it and protects his platoon, etc. But they learn from it. There is no blame exchange. It's very interesting to hear you bring up uh, General McChrystal. When, when he spoke uh, at this conference that I attended, he he made the point that communication was a big part of bringing together the different teams that he had to work with. And there was quite a bit of debate when they started uh, what turned out to be a huge meeting where all the bases would actually uh, come, together, come yeah. together once a day and exchange information. There was a lot of fear at that point. Uh, he made the point that there was a lot of fear that the enemy would be able to intercept a large part of the communication. And so people were worried, you know, if we let too many people in on the plan, the plan's going to get out. And what they realized through the process, and I think this is true in business as well, is that the risks of information getting out is worth is worth bringing people into the plan and empowering them. Yeah, I'd wholly agree with that. But fostering, you know, that forum and that safe environment 
for transfer, not just of information, but back to intellectual property of know-how experience, you know, um, shared experiences sometimes. That is a huge part of what a leader does. And, you know, I'm working in Melbourne today to figure out where the gaps in our connective tissue are, because we we are going through a growth phase. We've hired um, a large number of people. We're bedding in and consolidating. And now it's around getting the supporting infrastructure around everybody so that they are set up for success. Sounds like an interesting challenge. <laughs> I'm sure you would have seen this through your career that some of the best investment professionals can sometimes have very big personalities. <laughs> yeah. We use big as a euphemism. You can fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. How do you create and maintain the right culture in an investment team? And also, how do you motivate and retain staff? Alignment. It's, it's you know, whether it's a, a big personality sales guy on a trading floor in broking or it's a big personality PM managing money. Um, I think keeping everybody aligned to um, a common end game, which is ultimately in asset management, generating better futures for clients, um, keeping that line of sight front of everybody's mind um, and making sure that the transparency between business um, who fronts, you know, salespeople who front out to clients and the PM who is basically manufacturing returns for the clients is hugely important. Um, the incentivization structure is very important on both sides but also the KPIs um, that are delivered to a portfolio manager has to line up with the distribution side so um you know the for us generating alpha is primary but it's not short term you know we are rewarding RPMs over a 3 and a 5 year time horizon because we believe that's in the client interest and um, we believe that you know short termism there's already enough of that in stock markets as it stands if we were just to look at equity markets in particular we need to negate for that noise we need to think about the longer lens the rolling performance also to you know to the point around manager skill that you know time and time again through cycles different conditions that you can generate that outperformance and that it is idiosyncratic um, so we will pay for that and we will pay handsomely and that's ultimately aligned with the client need at the end of it. Um, and I think then in terms of uh, helping portfolio managers mentor other PMs and mentor analysts, again, you have to you know, make it in their interests for them to share their intellectual property, give of their expertise and their experience, especially to the, the younger crews coming along and no and that is part of their KPIs and nowhere is it more important probably than now which we're 10 years on from uh, GFC and there are a lot of people in this industry who do not know what the GFC was or understand what that felt like so that's particularly important today. Okay so you've got the incentive structure right and you've got the KPIs right and you've got this interchange of knowledge and ideas what does that look like? I think a mirror of the fact that we're living in an ecosystem, that everything is an ecosystem. So if I was to take you know, it right down to the granular level of looking at a specific stock, no analyst would look at Apple in isolation. They would be looking at supply chains, competitors, um, 
you know, they would be looking at trend analysis in terms of um, device purchase, um, etc. So, you know, front to back, an analyst is looking at Apple within its ecosystem. And I think then you step that out to the sectors um, rubbing off against each other as, as part of their ecosystem. And a PM sitting over the top of that, looking at everything on a relative basis, you know, stocks on their relative basis, sectors, et cetera, markets, if, if they're going across markets, et cetera. And then I think the, you know, so what does that actually mean for the conversations and for um, how decisions get made? It is about these disparate conversations um, with very, very different people in different parts of the world to round out your view of an investment, of a stock, of your portfolio structuring. It is to think about in today's world, you know, where imbalances are happening in the system. You know, I worry about the number of buy recommendations that there are on the FANG stocks. It just screams to me. I look at market breadth at the moment and I just look at, you know, certainly since a couple of months ago, you know, the the number of stocks that are um, above their 52-week highs relative to those that are not. Um, it's only a tiny number. Market breadth has massively shrunk. So it is thinking about, yes, this is a good investment from a metrics point of view, but what's the context and how am I actually going to get line of sight on what's happening from a contextual uh, point of view? So that means, you know, the equity guys sitting in the equity bubble, they are going to die. They have to be talking to the multi-asset guys within our firm. They have to be talking to fixed income. They have to be analyzing stocks in partnership with their credit analysts as well. And it is that more collaborative collegiate, almost mirroring um, across the capital structure investing, even if you do invest in just one part of the capital structure. The lens is different. I guess, as, as we said earlier, this is where the incentives and the KPIs are very important because you've got to, you've got to encourage people to behave that way because um, historically it, it probably hasn't been natural for many investment firms to organise them at, in such a, a multidisciplinary collaborative way they tended to specialize in, yeah. in different areas but uh, it's it's interesting how things are moving much more um, much more towards generalists in some ways I think we need specialists but we also need generalists yeah as well. and it's called the the T structure from memory in terms of expertise that you need a business you need a number of people that can go across the top and then you'll need a number of people who can go very deep down into particular topics but you kind of have triggered you know um something for me in terms of if i look at our clients um major industry funds superannuation funds there's a lot of friction in the system for them as well um and and that's actually reflecting back into how we structure our businesses and asset management so if you think about it a, let's say a normal superannuation fund here has a stated objective of, let's say, CPI plus 4% and really should be approaching investments on a total portfolio view. So with each allocation of money, what does this either strategy or asset class, what function does it perform inside my portfolio with this total portfolio lens? And I want to stay fully focused on um, the CPI plus 4% outcome. Yet you think about the organizational structure as it stands today. I've got a head of equities, head of fixed income, head of real estate. I might have a head of alternatives, head of PI, whatever. 
and you have the silos still existing under the cover of that objective. Um, so there's friction inside that system. And where we should be pitching our offerings, be it intellectual property that's embodied in a strategy on the basis of this is what this, let's say, real estate, an allocation to our real estate fund um, can generate you CPI plus, let's say, 2% or 3% over the long term and therefore can fulfill a function for you. We're still being forced to face off to the real estate guy. So what I've noticed with a number of funds here in Australia, and I think it's a fantastic evolution, in part it's the adoption of the Tars Watson total portfolio thinking, where yes, you have your silos, but you all feed into a total portfolio lens, share ideas. If a particular investment idea is coming up, let's say through Oz Equities, is there anywhere else that we can also harvest returns um, from the same thematic elsewhere? And so you align these heads, um, if you like, via their incentive structure to contribute to the total portfolio view. That evolution is improving our ability to face off, as in asset managers' ability to face off to clients to offer our intellectual property, you know, because we actually mirror our super um, funds. We have... um, capital markets assumptions, we have strategic asset allocation, tactical asset allocation, we get to express our views in multi-asset portfolios, much the same as a super fund. But we can offer all of our mechanics as IP, as just information sharing um, to our clients. So um, I think that evolution will accelerate the, the collaborative working inside asset managers, and that can only be a good thing. It's uh, interesting to see that pro- progression happen uh, with some of the larger funds. What do you think is causing them to do that? Why now? Why now? Because they're worried. So if you think about the last 10 years, it has been phenomenal in terms of returns. We haven't had that many speed bumps. I mean, drawdowns have been absolutely tiny throughout that period. It may be a little bit in the um, taper tantrum in 2013, but there's been no pause for breadth. The interesting thing about this bull market run that we've had is it's felt really bloody miserable, to be perfectly honest. Nobody has felt confident. Nobody, like it hasn't felt in markets like we've all run off, you know, to the races, thought we were rock stars and, and we're set. Kind of looked like that in January a little bit <laughs> a and then little pulled bit. back. Um, yeah, and I'm saying that in the, the week after Apple went over a trillion. Um, but certainly, in talking to investors, you know, there's there's been a healthy level of fear all the way along, but there's been an acknowledgement that, you know, cannot see, most of us as investors can see the reason for markets to run out of steam because we were overextended from a valuation perspective. But can you see, you know, a confluence of factors that will cause a bust? Um, and that's really, really difficult. So, we're staying invested, we're staying invested, but we're white knuckle riding now. And I think the super funds in particular, you know, I mean, you're looking at some um, here in Melbourne, Host Plus, like double, double digit returns last year. They know that that's not sustainable. It just is not sustainable, but we're, we're in it as long as the ride is good. But I want to have my reserve positions well thought about and my structures in place for when markets turn. And that I think that's incredibly healthy. I I would agree that definitely uh, anticipating a low return environment 
has driven this focus towards whole of portfolio approach. I think there's another thing happening as well, and I think that's just that funds have gotten to a scale where having the silos just doesn't work. work. Finding another Australian small cap manager. <laughs> yeah. Where, how, where are they going to find one? Capacity. Yeah. Gonna, if they find one, they'll take all of its capacity and it will have an immaterial effect on their returns because they're now so big that who cares? So it, it's kind of forcing funds to think and make their decisions at the higher levels, at either the sector level or the country level or the asset class level, yep. people paying more attention to dynamic asset allocation. They're okay. also looking more at co-investment yep. or using factor strategies that are larger yep. and liquid. And I think a large part of that's just scale. They're just, uh, And this is something that I'm looking forward to to discussing with a, a future guest very shortly. I'd be interested to get your views as well is at what point does a fund become so big that things like stock picking start to become irrelevant? Irrelevant, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I look at, you know, peers internationally. I look at CalPERS at 300 billion and they're still generating outperformance for their memberships, for their for their mm-hmm. client base. So, you know, we've got a distance to go before any of the Aussie funds hit that, um, you know, but that said, the level of growth that we're experiencing, it won't take us particularly long to get there. They um, are being particularly um, ingenious in terms of how they harvest intellectual property from asset managers like us. Um, how we transfer, you know, our know-how across to them um, and, and how they can actually learn. And then if they see particular strategies like signaling portfolios, et cetera, working, they may want to extrapolate that across their total asset base. But um, I think they are in particular are quite ingenious in how they use the street as in asset managers. And I know for a fact um, a lot of Australian um, superannuation funds and industry funds, you know, already talk to their counterpart, counterparts overseas, Canadian pension funds, um, European sovereigns, etc., to learn because we're moving into um, the zone where we've got a very firmly established, fantastic asset base here managed by really, really good investors and managements within the funds. But we are stepping into the realm of really, truly owning long horizon investing. And that's because, to your point, you know, the kind of the shorter term allocations to Oz equities, etc., is only going to take us so far. The lens is shifting to generate long term returns, especially as the demographic starts to shift and there is a liability on the other side. It calls for different thinking and you want to be getting your, your stall set up now. You want to get the uh, investment expertise in. You want to be learning from, from others offshore. We don't have to learn everything ourselves. So um, we can look and see what's worked for other markets and we can adopt that here. Mm-hmm. I have to ask this question, obviously, <laughs> given that you're working at Fidelity and Fidelity is a huge global organization. Yep. We often hear institutional investors talk about having a preference for smaller boutique managers. Obviously, you have a different view because you work for Fidelity. Tell us, what do you think they might be missing when they they form that impression? So from Fidelity's perspective, um, if you just applied, I guess, an AUM metric and filter over the top to choose 
um, an asset manager that's your ideal asset manager and you had a cap at a certain level or, you know, let's say even if you went to a granular level and said, you know, I don't want any firm that manages more than X in global equities. What you would be missing with Fidelity is that we have no one size fits all. Like we have a smorgasbord of individuals managing portfolios, how they want to manage portfolios. But if you were just talking about the equity space in particular, there is a commonality in that most would be bottom up stock pickers because that's the DNA of fidelity. It is based in research, analyst research, etc. Obviously, fixed income, completely different, although we have 50 credit analysts. So I think you would miss that piece. Um, and there is, you know, um, there's very, I can't think of many of our portfolio managers across all of the assets that are particularly similar. Um, if you were, we were just to look at, let's say, Fidelity Investments in the US, um, one of the funds which gets a huge amount of press is William, Will Danoff's Contra Fund, right? So we're at close to 140 billion global equity fund, great returns for investors. But he would have a peer in Jeremy Podger who manages global equities for Fidelity Investments, who's capping himself out at 10 billion. That's where he thinks he can generate alpha for clients and Will Danoff is different. So these individuals, you know, are absolutely well within their rights to do that. Jeremy Podger runs his fund his way and he thinks there would be alpha degradation if he goes much bigger. So within Fidelity, you've got individual factories, you've got, you know, people who behave as boutique managers. Um, you've got Paul Taylor, who runs a sizable Australian equity fund. You know, there's criticism levied at us in terms of the size through there. But you have, if you want skin in the game, there's a gentleman that has 100% of his superannuation in his fund. So he feels all of the pain and all of the glory hand in hand with clients. You would miss that if you just had a AUM filter across the top. I think that was a, a fair response. So I'm going to hit you with another <laughs> devil's advocate question now. I'm not going to let you off the hook yet. No, that's fine. Are large global investment managers really the asset gatherers that they're often accused of being? Will you launch any strategy you think can gather assets? Is that what the, the game's all about? We have, if we were purely about asset gathering, we would not launch small cap funds, right? We would not be launching low carbon bond funds um, and, you know, quite bespoke um, strategies like that because the actual... The cost of that, the cost of supporting an analyst through our system into becoming a PM through PM Academy, baking that guy, you know, through a process of, you know, a pilot fund before going live, then in the Australian market, it being so gatekeeped, getting them another three years to get rate, you know, track record to get rated, etc. The sunk cost against those individuals is absolutely huge. And if you are purely looking at it from an asset gathering perspective, you would say no to, to small caps. You would say no to funds that could only raise two and three billion because the commercials wouldn't make sense. So we certainly don't do that. Um, we don't have this ad asset gathering lens. Now, that said, let me talk about passive plus active. And, you know, I am a passive plus active investor. That is my approach also to our business. I believe passive is superb for the end client. I think it is absolutely 
um, a healthy counterweight to active management on the other side. And why do I say that? Because it is forcing a hollowing out of the middle ground. If you are going to survive as an active manager, you will have to prove to clients that you produce idiosyncratic alpha. Alpha that cannot be replicated by an allocation to either passive or a smart beta. And that can only be in the client interest because therefore that hollowing out process, you either pay a very low or no fee for your beta and your passive trade, or you pay up for active management on the other side. Um, And Fidelity is an active plus passive house. We have both. We're known, especially in Australia, for active management. If we're solving problems for clients, let's say we have um, a super fund come to us and they want to inflation proof their portfolio, which we've worked on, you know, if we need to make um, or it's, you know, economical to do it, we make allocations to passive plus active. We will package that up. They are instruments to be used to deliver an outcome for our clients. Um, and in that, I guess we become agnostic to the, the passive plus active. It's what packaging, what um, basket of instruments, etc., delivers for the client. Where I do think we have to be very, very careful is all ecosystems, you know, healthy ones are in balance. And I do worry that we've had this huge growth in passive. It's massively accelerated, you know, over the, since 2003 and that we potentially have an imbalance in the system that imbalance will write itself and there will be a settling down um, and then a move forward again. It's interesting to hear you talk about active and passive being used together. The way I've always conceptualized it, and it's, it's a very simple example, is to use them much as you'd mix cordial. So you've got the water that's free, you've got the concentrate which has the flavor which you buy, and you mix them to taste. Uh, and often I find that that actually in, in constructing portfolios, it gives you another lever to pull because you can adjust the level of active risk to suit what you're trying to do exactly. rather than pay a manager to do it, uh, which generally ends up costing you more. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting though, it's often very hard to get people to think of it that way because they see taking that risk management in-house as not being something that they necessarily want to do. They, in, in some cases, they want to outsource that to the manager, but I do think that's changing somewhat. Yeah. I, I think uh, a lower return environment that's and a need to be it. competitive is yeah, yeah it's we'll forcing that. people to think about that some more. So you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but what do you think active management will look like in the future? I I think in the next five years, um, the cream will rise to the top because I don't think there's anywhere left to hide our conversations. And, and it's it's us going front foot when we go out to our clients and talk to our clients um, us wanting to prove that our portfolio managers um, have skill um, and that it is idiosyncratic. Um, and that places us if we can truly prove it and you get buy-in from the client on the other side the persistency of money that comes in to those strategies should be very very high because we should also along with generating returns we should also be able to be very transparent as to when a portfolio will perform and when it won't and all portfolios go through periods when they don't perform right um 
for a client, giving them comfort on how a particular strategy and a PM will behave under certain conditions allows them on the total portfolio basis to solve for that. And what you definitely don't want is a portfolio manager changing spots, you know, and and switching around on you when clients have um, allocated. So to my mind, the idiosyncratic piece, the true skill piece ultimately leads to a better persistency. I think the fee debate changes in turn because the actual value for money that you're seeing, um, I think in part because we had benchmark huggers, we had me too, we had that middle ground inactive, you know, a lot charging very, very high fees. We left ourselves open to um, the decline in fees. I, I, looking at the market, feel that's bottoming out, certainly on an institutional level. Um, and there is an acknowledgement of the value of active management and therefore what um, individual clients are willing to pay and how they use up their fee budgets. But if I looked you know, beyond the kind of the five years, you get the cream rising to the top and um, you get a level of harmony, I hope, with passive. Um, I do believe that we probably, from an investments point of view, move much more into investing across the capital structure. I still don't understand why if I want to generate returns, let's say I'm an equity PM, that I cannot buy the hybrid or I can't buy the bond if the company is being run for the bondholders. So I think those type of cross um, the capital structure style investments will probably grow. To your point, it probably will take a period of lower returns and the requirement to harvest every single basis point towards a CPI plus objective um, as the driving force. And having a research base that can support that will be really important. If I was to look 10 years out, my view is, and I'm asked questions on this all the time, around um, technology companies becoming asset managers, you know, and why why wouldn't an Amazon, um, an Alibaba, etc. So bearing that in mind, I think that they won't necessarily want to become asset managers, but they will become a distribution arm for us. Um, and I think Robo is the start in that direction to a degree where and their client acquisition, obviously, you know, is fantastic. But asset managers will provide the back end. We will provide the engine room. It will just be a different route to market um, which will be appropriate for a specific cohort. It's, it's funny you mention uh, tech companies moving into finance. I believe they probably could quite easily and I'm sure they've thought of it. But I don't think they want the regulatory no. scrutiny that, that will come with it, uh, particularly when you see things like uh, Google getting fined in the UK for, oh, sorry, in the, in the EU for uh, anti-competitive behaviour. And if it yeah. has to uh, comply with EU financial regulations, that would be a nightmare for them. So, uh, But it, it's interesting, and I'm sure there are people beavering away yeah. inside of Google and Apple right now. Um, yeah. using their, their, their search tools to do all sorts of investment things. Um, maybe that's somewhere sitting somewhere in the other bets portfolio. Possibly, yeah, <laughs> hidden away from the public market's view. That we don't know about. So you, you touched briefly on fees and the pressure on fees to sort of squeeze everything out uh, given this low return environment. What can fund managers do to offer their clients more value for money other than just yeah. lowering the fee? So my view is 
that in terms of servicing clients and in today's selling, selling today is a mix of product placement and client servicing. And we no longer flog a product or a strategy. You know, there's no value in that. Um, there is an offer of strategies in order to achieve particular outcomes. But more important is the service that we provide around that. And sometimes for, um, let's say, clients here in Australia, um, our company in the US, 50 million accounts, their digital marketing um, and their ability to use data down through years, they have, you know, succeeded in client engagement via the, you know, the digital uh, channel, if you like. Um, it's just absolutely phenomenal. It's really, really powerful. So what we offer to clients here is the option to go to Boston and learn what we do with our clients in the US because member engagement is a huge issue here. So a lot of superannuation funds doing terrifically well on the investment side and massively disengaged membership. So how do they bridge that, especially before going into the whole retirement piece? They need to solve for that engagement to get people lined up for transition and then engage with them in retirement. So there is um, transfer of expertise and knowledge and um, I suppose a much more open door policy around uh, intellectual property. I think that just becomes the norm quite frankly, you know, today you could say it's a differentiator depending on what um, expertise you can offer and how you can offer that. But really, if you're to do it well, how many of those partnerships could we have here in Australia? Five. You know, if we are to really transfer our IP across to clients, have a multi-layered conversation at all levels in the organization, there's probably very few that we could truly service so um you know you need to find your ideal partner as well so we need to find our ideal client and super needs to find their ideal asset manager partner and that's a bit of trial and error on both sides quite frankly mm -hmm. i think that's an interesting point that uh, large fund managers uh, particularly fund managers with a, a large and well-established retail business whether it be in the u.s or another country have already solved a lot of the problems that funds will need to solve yep. as they become larger and also as they move beyond the particular interest group or industry group where their fund started. Yeah. Because it's easy to keep in touch with everybody when you're in the same industry or in the same zone. zone. Yeah. But when you're starting to extend, extend beyond that, it becomes a bit more challenging. So I, I think that's an interesting idea. And I was going to ask you, why do you think we haven't seen a lot of innovation in post-retirement up until now? And what is Fidelity doing on the post-retirement front here in Australia? Yeah. Well, in part, it's the demographics um, because we're just reaching a point where the numbers going through to transition and into retirement is growing. And the, del you know, the delta on that cohort is starting to extend over the delta on accumulation. But we will be in accumulation for a long period to come. Um, I think it's really based on Deloitte's research 2036 when we um, hit the Rubicon and cross over. So more retiring than more coming into the workforce. 
Um, but you've got to look at that a little bit more deeply in that most of the accumulation is only really going to a handful of funds. Agreed. So yep. m- the vast majority of funds by number, if not by size, are already at or close, close to, to. The accumulation. Um, I think the the focus on post-retirement, to a degree, you know, we're still an equity country. And I think, you know, most investors still like to have their share account with their stockbroker and want to be invested in equity markets. And given it's almost as if the Australian population kind of decided to solve for their own mortality or longevity risk by staying invested in markets and staying at the risk curve. So um, I think that the, the willingness to take risk has probably been part of it. Um, I do think Though, you know, as we discussed, those the heady days of the returns that we've seen over the last 10 years, um, you know, they have to end and therefore uh, drawdown risk, you know, uh, in particular preserving capital, either going into retirement or during retirement becomes way more important. I do think that um, to a degree we have been insulated from the GFC here in Australia, apart from, you know, if you were exposed to US stock markets and you had that 50% decline in 2008, the the level of insulation that this market, both economically and then from an asset price point of view via real estate, etc., probably kept the, the monkey on your shoulder of risk and the risk of permanently losing capital away. So the focus on, well, what do I do in retirement when I can't afford to lose money, where I have to make my money work for me and generate an income because I'm not earning, um, that imp- that kind of, you know, impetus to change and, and make decisions in a different way wasn't there. What I do think that we've got here is an opportunity for a small country in a big hurry to learn from overseas markets. So we can look at the experience um, in the US. We can look at Europe where there's been unfunded liabilities forever the longest time. Those have been on company balance sheets, which of course we don't have um, because of our superannuation setup. Um, but we can learn from how they've solved particular problems in those geographies where we've had, let's say, local government authorities with negative cash flows, unfunded liabilities, the absolute worst type of pension problem to have. We can look at Japan. We, Fidelity, have decumulation um, business there where you're trying to to solve for longevity risk um, and, um, you know, ensure people have enough money in retirement. So I think we're in a great position to take the learnings of, of overseas. Then how do we do it? Going and picking something that worked o- offshore and plugging it into the Australian market would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. So I've been with Fidelity for years Um in my role before taking over running the business um, as an investment specialist, investment director, I thought the appropriate approach for us for retirement would be to launch a global multi-asset income fund. Makes sense. We need income. You need to be using assets all over the world um, to generate that income. But that was very one-dimensional thinking on my part. That kind of one product solves all. Um, and, and luckily, uh, I, I changed course and I changed course because I talked to people in markets. I went to conferences. I listened to challengers speak. So we have hired a head of client solutions and retirement, uh, Richard Dinham, who was the CIO and then head of research at State Plus, one of our large, um, super funds. 
And Richard's job is to design retirement for fidelity, design what that looks like and begin to build a business for us. And how is he doing that? He gets to sample all of the building blocks across Fidelity, both from the US and Fidelity Investments from Europe down through Asia. And he gets to go out and talk to the market on what's appropriate for this society. Um, also to think about, you know, on a 5, 10, 20 year view, how are people going to behave? What will they be spending their money on? What will healthcare costs be on the other side of that? Um, and so the modeling that will go in, um, to our approach to retirement, I hope will be, you know, quite granular and very broad based. Um, and then we will be working with market participants on how we package that for various cohorts. But one of the things that I would say we cannot solve is those that are fronting out to the end client, be it a super fund with member engagement or be it a platform and an advisor through to the end client is Risk profiling is dangerous. It is one-dimensional and it would put investors, probably at their most vulnerable, into the wrong portfolio. And my view, and it's a personal view, is that we need to move into three-dimensional approach to our clients, where we are looking at three things. Risk profiling, what the objectives are, and what the total portfolio view is. So an individual coming in could have their own house, two investment properties, um, and maybe a term deposit. They don't need more income. They need probably growth and a little bit of risk in there. By taking into account those factors, you know, um, collating that information somewhere, be it on a super funds, you know, portal, be it on BT Panorama, whatever, that's it's not for a fidelity to do. But we need to plug our offering in to that system. So in us being very public on what the evolution looks like towards good retirement offerings in Australia, we definitely want to bring our partners with us on the journey, you know, because if we move together and are aligned, then the outcome for the end client is going to be so much better. I couldn't help but think as you were describing your vision of the future, which I think is is probably what's going to happen in that we're going to have to take much more of a total or holistic view yeah. of people's needs, objectives, their, their life balance sheet, their yeah. assets, is that that's going to be a massive culture shift for superannuation because superannuation has for all of its history been built around the collective, been built around yeah. let's pull it all together and grow it. And what you're describing is essentially, well, let's understand each individual and their circumstances and almost mass customization, I guess. Yeah. We build the building blocks, but we assemble them differently for each person. Uh, and that, that's a pretty big shift in culture from how super has operated up until now. I'd be interested to, to hear your views on how that shift might take place. The only thing I can think that might help it is technology. But uh, Agreed. And it absolutely is that. And I think that's why I'm not frightened or worried by robo-advice. I think this is great. It brings advice at a level um, to clients who may not have accessed it. Um, we just need to get everybody into the mindset that they do need outside expertise in order to get their inv investments pointing the right direction and solving for their lifestyles and, and their problems. So there's a couple of different things. The super funds have their member data 
um, they are moving towards using that data much more efficiently and appropriately. And if that data was interrogated through time, especially for those that have had members move into retirement, we probably would get a great lens um, on the needs here. But again, we can adopt um, technology that's been used elsewhere, um, be it, let's say, I'm thinking about things like Fidelity Investments in the US. So our digital um, portal, Fidelity Go, for our investors in the US, based on what clients are invested in, um, but also what they're interested in, what queries they've come through, um, et cetera, where they are in their um, life cycle, what else they have in their portfolios with us. Our systems can um, suggest a list of the top 10, 10 things they should do with their investments to ensure a healthy future. 10 things is too much for anybody to take on board. So while it would give you a list of 10, it gives you the next thing you must do, the next decision that you must do as an investor um, to remain healthy, etc. So I think, you know, that type of technology is there to be used. I think we're a little bit away from that currently, um, whether that's with the super funds or it's the platforms or advisors on the other side. Um, but once, you know, the transition begins and apps actually make it easier, we'll move. The interesting thing to me is looking at super funds and where there now, there are some that actually have um, the company advisor ratings on their websites where um, members can actually go and check out which advisors are highly rated. And at least there's a beginning to link up where super funds do want their client base to be advised. Um, so the advice uh, mindset zeitgeist is beginning uh, to come in and I just think that's an interesting development when you've got the Royal Commission blowing apart vertically integrated advice models yet we know there absolutely is a place for advice and we know there is a value to advice where advice ultimately sits inside an IFA dealer group on a platform etc um, yet to be seen we have our views but you know, moving towards what's in the best interest of clients, you know, I think we're we're moving very speedily towards a good outcome here in Australia. Let's hope so. Let's hope we finally shake off the legacy of insurance sales, which is yeah. really where a lot of this, advice yeah, started and, and, and much of the culture is still similar to uh, selling insurance products. Yeah. So hopefully we can move past that and be much more, uh, much more, objective oriented and more client oriented so wrapping up our chat i've got a i've got an idea what you're going to say for one of these already that's a question i ask most of my guests what are three practical steps that investors can take to improve their investment decision making outside expertise i knew you were going to say yeah. that um Every single one of us, including market participants, you know, and it's a little bit like the tradesman, you know, the carpenter whose kitchen doors are hanging off at home. You know, even those of us in financial markets don't necessarily do a great job of looking after our own financial affairs. Um, I think, you know, the value of advice in, in um, not just what investments to choose, but the packaging of those investments for a particular outcome but also estate planning. We're moving into a phase where the depth of wealth has grown for such a young economy. I mean, we're less than two, you know, what about 200 years old and haven't had to go through enormous, you know, busts and booms, but we've developed a very rich 2.7 trillion asset base 
we will be moving into intergenerational wealth transfer and we are going to need that because people are going to be living longer. So you think about Japan, those that are coming up to retirement now that don't have enough money, their parents are dying, you know, so they're at 65 and their parents, you know, dying or, you know, in the next five to 10 years. That transfer of wealth is necessary for the health of Japanese society. And I think, you know, in the US, you're beginning to see that as well. Um, and we will come into that in Australia. And, you know, I don't necessarily know that we pay that due attention here. So that's that's number one. So how many were you looking for? So three. So <laughs> three. you mentioned talking outside your uh, outside your field or your area. Yeah. Um, so definitely that. I think um, diversification. So, you know, it's great to to have a winner whether that's a stock or it's a portfolio manager or it's fidelity australian equities etc um but you need to have you know diversification especially as you know you're coming up to retirement to hedge against risk and downside risk in particular you need to be very very careful of the correlations though or the layering of risks because having your own home in australia and then having two investment properties and then buying bank shares for dividends is not actually diversifying your risk. You know, you now have, you know, three to four warrants on the Australian property market. So um, just be careful that because you're different asset classes, that the underlying risk, if you like, is not the same one. And the third one is if you don't understand something, stay away from it. Right. Um I, I sit and think about the JFC a lot at the moment because I've been asked an awful lot of questions about it. We're coming up to the 10 year anniversary. And have we learned all the lessons really that the, the GFC taught us? And I'm kind of go, going to go full circle here where I go back to my genetic engineering um, background. You know, you cannot legislate against human behavior. So we have got great breaks in the system now because of the GFC. So we have, we had Basel one, which, you know, um, had uh, capital adequacy ratios for banks. And because then the GFC was precipitated by housing, etc., we now have BAL2, which mandates you can only have a certain amount of risk on a bank balance sheet from one area. And so the legislation is basically coming in to protect humanity from itself, but it can only go so far. And we all get caught up, you know, in the next big thing. And I just think about Bitcoin. If people ask me, have we learned lessons? I just look at Bitcoin and say, obviously not. Um, in part because I don't understand it. I understand the technology and blockchain. I think that's got legs. I think it's amazing. But I do not understand Bitcoin and I don't know how you value that. And yet last September, we had 400 million US, over 400 million US flow into Bitcoin. Now, I look at last month and that was only 60 million. So you can see the head of steam coming out of there. But if you don't understand something, you know, then even though the, it is the next best thing at the moment, um, my advice is stay away. I think there's some excellent tips there. <laughs> Alva, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting markets with you. OK, you're very welcome. Thank you, thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.